0: This episode is brought to you by the In Between Podcast, a podcast about marriage, parenting, faith, and everything in between.
1: Join us as we give you the tools to learn how to build a strong, connected, and joy filled marriage and family.
0: For more information, go to inbetween.org. That's imbetween.org. This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts.
2: and so did God in perfection, increase the nation and the spiritual seed of Abraham.
1: Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered. Uh, This week is kind of our part two to to John Knox. We're going to title this sermon, The Chastisement of Jerusalem. It's kind of that part two where John Knox is breaking down Isaiah 26, 17 through 21. Last
0: episode, we gave you an overview and mentioned that it was very difficult to just nail down John Knox's life. He was one of those people who just lived a really incredible life, who did a lot of things. This week, we are bringing you an expert's voice and someone who has done a lot of research on both John Knox and the Reformation in general, Douglas Bond, who is the speaker for the sermon last week and this week, the whole uh, series here. Douglas Bond is the author of more than 25 books. He is the husband of Cheryl, father of six, and a grandfather of five. He is the director for the Oxford Creative Writing Masterclass, two-time Grace Award finalist, adjunct instructor in church history, advisory member to the National Committee for Reformed University Fellowship, award-winning teacher, speaker at conferences, and leader church history tours in Europe. He has also written two different books on John Knox. One is The Mighty Weakness of John Knox, and another was a historical fiction book that you can read that tells the story of John Knox in narrative fiction form. And we are going into this interview where we were asking him questions we thought that the audience would want to hear the answers to. So, can you tell us what got you interested in John Knox?
2: Well, I began uh, taking students and readers on uh, church history tours. And uh, so, in 1996, I uh, was doing research for taking my first group uh, of students. Uh, now, I take adults and families and everything. but um, And um, fascinated with him. Of course, I knew something about him already uh, from... Uh, Reformation co- courses I'd taken and books I'd read and things as well. But um, fascinating uh, figure. And I think one of the things that so intrigued me about him is similar to uh, John Bunyan in the sense that John Knox, as far as there's any record, never finished uh, college, never finished university. Nobody's quite sure if he went to the University of Glasgow or if he went to the University of St. Andrews. Uh, there were a number of other Scottish preachers in the Protestant Reformation in Scotland in the 16th century who had more formal education than John Knox. But John Knox was given a special equipping by the Holy Spirit to be the powerhouse of the Reformation. And I was intrigued by the fact that he—it wasn't just part of his DNA. He wasn't a kid, you know, like my uh, son Giles. When he was a little boy, he would get up on the hearth and he would want to preach to us in the evening in the living room. You know, that wasn't John Knox. He mm-hmm. was—he uh, was a very uh, quiet, behind-the-scenes sort of person, which people don't really believe that when I when mm-hmm. when they read yeah. my biography or my my, my uh, <laughs> adult novel or when I'm speaking somewhere, they think, no, 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 he's a thundering Scott. You know, he had to be. Yeah, I mean, he gets yeah. in trouble all the time. That's exactly. surprises me. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. He's not, he, you know, Luther, you could make the argument that Luther was a bigger than life, left left tackle, you know, sort of personality. But Knox was not. Um, and uh, I think that pr- proof of that is that um, when he was first called on to preach, uh, he was so terrified that he broke into tears and he ran from the room. It's very encouraging to know that, that God equips the called. and. Um, and uh, you don't have to have it necessarily in your DNA to, to be um, to be used of God in mm-hmm. the in the ways that He's uh, designed for you to be used.
1: Um, I, so I'm curious. I mean, if you Google Go- John Knox, uh, you get a lot of things that come up. And so I, I was kind of curious, as far as from your standpoint, from your viewpoint, what are some of his best account, whatever, what what are the accomplishments that people should know about?
2: Yeah. Well, uh, I would say enormous. Uh, you know, uh, Scotland today does not appreciate John Knox. In fact, he is persona mm-hmm. non grata. Uh, in 1972, uh, the 400th anniversary of his, uh, the year of his death, um, the Scottish um, Parliament decided that they didn't think it, he was appropriate to have a postage stamp. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with him being uh, accused of being a misogynist, a hater of women. But that's absolutely not true about Knox. It is uh, very far from the truth. The reason for it, of course, is that when he was in exile in Geneva, uh, uh, being, being uh, used uh, in Calvin's ministry there and uh, also in Frankfurt, and he, he was surrounded by three women tyrants. Uh, and they were all named Mary, so it gets very yeah. confusing. Um, and they all wanted his head on a platter. And um, so there was Mary Tudor, uh, Bloody Mary in England. There was Mary of Guise, um, the uh, Queen Regent, so the mother of Mary, Queen of Scots. So you got three tyrant Marys, and they were, n- they were not nice people uh, at all. And they were uh, oppressive and, and burning people at the stake and, and you know, going into churches like we hear about in Nigeria and Burkina Faso and, and all today and, and just ordering her French troops to gun people down. So when he got his teeth in and, and realized what was going on and the Spirit of God empowered him and just really stirred him up. Uh, he wrote a, he wrote a treatise called the first blast of the trumpet against the monstrous regiment of women. Uh, you know, and Calvin kind of advised him, you know, what, John, you might want to think about that before you, yeah. before you launch that one out there. Um, and, um, he was thinking of these three tyrants, uh, and particularly a bloody Mary who had recently burned his good friend, Hugh Latimer, the, um, Knox of England, uh, he was called, um. At the stake in uh, in Oxford, and um, he was he was he launched that out there, and uh, so then Mary, <laughs> Bloody Mary, Mary Tudor, Mary the uh, First, dies before she could even read it. Knox was very much in favor of a Bible in the language of the people, and uh, in fact, on his watch, just shortly after the Scots Confession was um, uh, written. In four days, by five men whose first name was John. There yeah, we joked confused. on the
0: show that if your name is John, you're a preacher because we've had John Newton, John Bradford, John Knox, yeah, uh, Jonathan Edwards, yeah, exactly. John Chrysostom. I mean, it's just yeah, your you're, you're you're, you're, for it. Yeah,
2: yeah, that's that's part of your part of your calling then. But um, yeah, um, and so he uh, presented to the Scottish Parliament this uh, the Scots Confession. And it was uh, unanimously approved by the Scottish lairds as the best summary of the Word of God, and so Knox then proceeded to uh, come up with an order of worship. You know, we've been we've been there's been idolatry in worship. That was a key word for Knox, um, and 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 he was passionate about expunging anything that smacked of idolatry in the worship of the living God. He saw it as rivals to Christ alone, to to Jesus Christ Himself, King. Jesus and he was he was not going to uh, to tolerate that. Mm -hmm. And so he crafts a order of service and and, a and a liturgy for the Scottish Church and um, and then also presents to Parliament a a plan for universal literacy. Um, you know, think about this. Today in Scotland, he's, he's a, very much an underappreciated person, and, he, and he's even, there's even hostility toward him in, in Scottish universities and all. He would, be, he would be seen as the problem, not part of the solution. But the fact is the women going to those Scottish universities today would not be there. They wouldn't be literate if it wasn't for John Knox. Uh, those three Marys uh, did not want women to have formal education knox did you know he wanted um uh, everybody to be able to read the scripture so the first national education system in the history of the western world was in scotland wow and it was instituted by john knox it was initiated by john knox but knox wanted everybody to read rich or poor male or female in the whole realm of scotland and he wanted it his main motive is to um, to avoid to be a to create a country of Bereans <laughs> who as they listened to the Word of God preached, they would hear the the introduction of error. They would have their ears so tuned because they've been reading their Bible, they were so saturated in the Word of God. Um, and, and they could read it themselves and they had that Christologic uh, hermeneutic. They knew that when they went to the scriptures, they were they were hunting for Jesus Christ.
0: So now, my next question is We, we talked about how he had these uh, political foes with uh, the different Marys. I kind of looked at his life and I saw that he seemed, if I correct me if I'm wrong, he seemed to have kind of back and forth with the queens and the kings of their time. Wh- we don't have kings and queens per se today, but what what do you think is the pastor's role in kind of dealing with political office and dealing with political figures? You know, John Knox, even though you, you mentioned he was kind of a meeker guy, I feel like he kind of would kind of... T- t- call it as he saw it and you know, let people know how he felt. But today, I feel like there's a, a strong movement to say the church should really not be involved in the politics of the day-to-day. Just kind of from John Knox's life, what, what are yeah. you thinking?
2: Well, Knox would not have agreed with that. The, the Sola Scriptura teaches us that, uh, that, that we have salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone to the glory of God alone. And that's what that's the principal thing that a, a mm-hmm. preacher and pastor and sh- under-shepherd should be concerned with. Does that have political implications? Uh, does that, uh, yeah, I think it does. And does it have implications? Because we've, we've relegated all kinds of things to politics. Uh, education, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, you know, show me in, in Sola Scriptura where education should be in the hands of the, of the civil arm. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm waiting. <laughs> You're not going to find it. It's not yeah. there. Um, you know. So, is that politics or is that part of the preacher's role? Well, I think it's part of the preacher's role. The parenting, um, uh, the raising of children, all of those things. Um, you know, we've we've had all kinds of uh, you know sort of backwash into politics. Things that are clearly. Uh, uh, biblical and, and the, the sphere and role of the church and kingdom of God. Uh, abortion, I- the abortion issue is, um, you know, uh, that's, that's, uh, you know, as I see it, that's not politics. That's, that's, that's the Bible. That's, uh, you know, the, what the Bible teaches about the sanctity of human life. It can be politicized and it is all the time, but it's not a preacher stepping out of his role, in my opinion, uh, to, to, uh, to take on, I, in fact, I would I would even go so far as to say that a preacher is failing in his role if he's silent on abortion. Hmm. Um, if he's silent where the Bible speaks, <clears throat> then uh, he's maybe he's maybe caved into. that. Now, there's ways in which that can be, you know, politically driven and mm. and, and become partisan and become, uh, you know. And, and, and deviate away from sola scriptura and the rule, certainly. But Knox, um, Knox believed, and some of this is, is church, the church polity of Scotland at the time. He didn't see how a country could um, have multiple uh multiple religious affiliations I mean, that that this that wasn't even on the radar and it really wasn't mm-hmm. it wasn't for it wasn't for for Calvin it wasn't uh, it was more so for <clears throat> Luther because he was from a place that had uh, 200 different dukedoms you're not going to have a unified germany until 1871 you know yeah. um, and so you had uh, these different duk- and and in and in, and in and in switzerland you had more of a sense of um, a local uh, uh, unanimity in uh, uh, the closest conjunction in what the Bible teaches, uh, but they didn't have this sense that you know, well, pluralism and everybody can just pick and choose, and we're just not going to, and you know, and, and you know, our pluralism as we have let it morph into is not working very well. Let's just face, mm-hmm. no, let's just face it, um, mm-hmm. and and so these, you know, we think well, we're enlightened now because we believe in pluralism. Uh, John Witherspoon. There's another preacher who, <laughs> called John, right? Yeah. You know, I mean, they're all John's It seems like, you know, but John Witherspoon understood uh, because he had covenanting history. He understood this grand struggle of the church um, and, and signing the national covenant uh, that that they would resist the uh, usurper of the crown rights of the Redeemer in his Kirk. Um, and Knox had had uh, he had grandkids that were in that fight and ending up in the Tower of London and so forth. Uh,
1: so I'm curious. I mean, we say on this show uh, time and time again, we're not we're not historians, we're not theologians. We enjoy theology and we enjoy history. Um, you are very familiar with John Knox. You literally wrote a book about him, and that's you know more familiar with a person from history like this than Troy and I are at all. Um, And I'm very curious, from from your point of view, from the point of view of someone that is uh, very familiar with uh, a person from history, what is your biggest uh, takeaway from from him? What is, you know, if you could point to one life lesson that you learned from John Knox's life that that we can learn from and apply to our lives today, um, what would that be?
2: Well, I'm so glad you asked that question. Um, You know, Knox was asked us similar things uh, in, in slightly different ways, but uh, the the Scottish Reformation um, happened on a fast track. It happened in this concentrated period of time. I mean, uh, when Knox came back in 1559 from his exile in Scotland, uh, he 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 was chained to an oar and was a galley slave when he first mm-hmm. had to leave Scotland for 19 months and nearly killed him. Um, mm-hmm. The bombardment of St Andrews Castle and all that. He was he was in there and and uh, could he so easily have been killed. Um, but in the providence of God, he was not. Um, but, um, when he, when he comes back in 1559, um, he's preaching on the run. Uh, the, he's staying one step. He came back in 1555, worst year to come back. And he's staying one step ahead of the henchmen of, uh, both, uh, Mary, the queen regent, uh, Mary Geese, she's a French woman. She wanted to tan Scotland over to, as a, as a province of France. And, um, was scheming to do so, and uh, the, the Scottish lairds didn't want that. Um, and then, of course, Bloody Mary was burning people at the stake—close to 300 by that time. And um, this was this was a very dangerous time to come back. But as as is so often the case, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, and um, uh, the, the the church is growing in the midst of this persecution. There's there's armies, in, you know, in in harness out there trying to stop. Knox, uh, there are, you know, the, the, the Archbishop of St. Andrews puts a hit out on Knox and says if he preaches, anybody can shoot him on sight. And so what does Knox do? He preaches, you know, it doesn't deter yeah. him at all. And, um, you know, he was, he was absolutely fearless uh, by this time. And people are coming to a living faith in Christ it, by the droves uh, Calvin sends a, a letter back to Knox and says, we're hearing reports. Are these reports accurate? There are people being converted to Christ, being born again by the t- thousands and thousands in this short period of time, and we are we are in wonder and awe and, and, and rejoicing at, at this. Uh, some historians estimate that there were more people brought to a living faith in Christ in uh, the, f- the few short years of Knox's life from 1559 to his death in 1572 th- than ever before in the history of the world. And, and again, wow. that's really hard to measure, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How, how do you keep track of that? You know, um, The early church, Jerusalem, 3,000 saved in one sermon. You know, mm-hmm. um, it, but but the, that's the kind of thing that was going on. The fact that, that historians are having that conversation says there was a lot going on. And so when Knox was asked, what happened? How'd you do it? You know, we would ask this today. What's your church church growth plan? You know, how'd you do that? Why don't you write a book? And so when he was asked that question, what happened? Knox said this, and I love this. This is my big takeaway. (laughs) God gave his Holy Spirit to simple men in great abundance. Hmm. God poured out his Holy Spirit on simple men in great abundance. You know, here's Knox. He deflects away from his role and he looks at, the students that he trained there at St Giles, the the um, you know the, the the Scottish lairds who were so committed to the gospel that they were protecting preachers and they were helping fund uh, you know the printing of books and 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 the and the, and the scriptures and and the Calvin's catechism and the, you know the basics the basic stuff that was the curriculum of this new uh, of this new education system that was thoroughly. Uh, from start to finish and everything in between, a Christian, Christ-centered education. And it was happening all over Scotland. You know, uh, it was God uh, giving his Holy Spirit in great abundance to simple men. And Knox saw himself as the foremost of those simple men uh, that God raised up. There's so much for us in that, in our world of methodology. And, you know, if we just uh, plug in this, this right way of doing things and all of that, you know we'll have a we'll have a revival and we did that in, the, in revivalism in the 19th century and, and and we're still doing it in various ways today if we just are hip and cool if we just you know if we have this kind of music or if we have this kind of a setup and these kind of lights and you know all that then we'll have uh, we'll. You know, we'll, we'll be able to speak to this generation. That's not how Knox thought. You know, he, he looked to the Spirit of God to empower simple men in great abundance and to raise them up for the glory of God and for the progress of the gospel. So says Cyrus, the king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth that the Lord God of heaven has given to me and has commanded me that a house be built to him in Jerusalem, which is in Judah, whomever of you that are his people. Let the Lord his God be with him and let him pass up to Jerusalem and let him build the house of the Lord God of Israel. For he only is God. Let us see how constantly God kept his promise in increasing his people and in growing his true knowledge beyond men's expectation, when both they that were the seed of Abraham and the religion which they professed appeared to have been extinguished. I say, he brought freedom out of bondage, light out of darkness, and life out of death. I'm not ignorant that the building of the temple and the reparation of the walls of Jerusalem were long delayed and that the work had many enemies, but the hand of God so prevailed in the end that a decree was made by Darius, not only that all things necessary for the building of the temple and for the sacrifices that were to be burnt there should be ministered upon the king's charges, but also that whosoever should hinder that work or change that decree, that a tree should be taken out of his house, and that he should be hanged there, and even that his house should be made a dunghill. And that there he added a prayer saying, The God of heaven who has placed his name there, root out every king and people, oh, that kings and nations would understand, that will put his hand either to change or to hurt this house of God that is in Jerusalem. And so, in despite of Satan, was the temple built, the walls repaired, and the city inhabited. And in the most desperate dangers, it was preserved until the promised Messiah, the glory of the second temple, came, manifested himself to the world, suffered and rose again according to the scriptures. And so, by sending out his gospel from Jerusalem, replenished the earth with the true knowledge of God. And so did God in perfection increase the nation and the spiritual seed of Abraham. Here, dear brethren, we have no small consolation. If the state of all things are this day rightly considered, we see in what fury and rage the world for the most part is now raised against the pure church of Jesus Christ, to which he has proclaimed liberty after the fearful bondage of that spiritual Babylon, in which we have been held captives a long space, a longer space than Israel was a prisoner in Babylon itself. For if we will consider upon the one part, the multitude of those that live wholly without Christ, and upon the other part, the blind rage of the pestilent papists, what will we think of the small number of them that profess Christ Jesus, but that they are as a poor sheep, already seized in the claws of the lion, and even that they and the true religion which they profess will in a moment be utterly consumed." But against this fearful temptation, let us be armed with the promise of God, namely that he will be the protector of his church, and even that he will multiply it, even when to man's judgment it appears to be exterminated. This promise God performed in the multiplication of Abraham's seed and the preservation of it when Satan labored to have it destroyed, and in deliverance of the same as we have heard from Babylon, he has sent his son Christ Jesus, clad in our flesh, who has tasted all our infirmities, sins accepted, who has promised to be with us to the end of the world, he has further kept promise in the publication and even in the restitution of his glorious gospel. Will we then think that he will leave his church destitute in this most dangerous age? But now let us hear what the prophet says. Lord, in trouble they have visited you. They poured out a prayer prayer when your chastening was upon them. Such obedience deserves small praise before men, for who can praise that which comes out of mere compulsion? And yet it is rare that any of God's children give unfeigned obedience until the hand of God turns them. For if quietness and prosperity don't make them forget their duty— both towards God and man, as David did for a season, yet it makes them careless, insolent, and in many things unmindful of those things that God chiefly craves of them. Which imperfection being seen and the danger that might ensue, our Heavenly Father visits the sins of His children, but with the rod of His mercy by which they are moved to return to their God, to accuse their former negligence, and to promise better obedience in all times hereafter, as David confessed, saying, Before I fell in affliction, I went astray, but now will I keep your statutes. When God lays his correction upon his own children to call them from the venom, of this corrupt world, and as it were, wean them from their mother's breasts that they may learn to receive other nourishment. This weaning from worldly pleasure is something strange to the flesh. And yet it is a thing so necessary to God's children that unless they are weaned from the pleasures of the world, they can never feed upon that delectable milk of God's eternal truth. For the corruption of the one either hinders the other from being received or else so troubles the whole power of man that the soul can never digest the truth of God as he should do. Although this appears hard, but it is true. For what can we receive from the world but that which is in the world? What that is, the Apostle John teaches saying, whatever is in the world is either the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, or the pride of life, 1 John 2. So God himself will violently pull his children from this venom, that when they lack the liquor and poison of the world, they may visit him and learn to be nourished by him. Oh, if the eyes of the worldly princes should be opened, that they might see with what humor and liquor their souls are fed, while their whole delight consists in pride, ambition, and the lusts of the corrupt flesh. We understand, then, how God does visit man, as well by his severe judgments as by his merciful visitations of deliverance from troubles, or by bringing trouble upon his chosen for their humiliation. And now it remains to understand how man visits God. Man does visit God when he appears in his presence, be it for the hearing of his word or for the participation of his sacraments as the people of Israel, besides the observation of their Sabbaths and daily offerings, were commanded thrice a year to present themselves before the presence of the tabernacle. And as we do, and us often as we present ourselves to the hearing of the word. But men may do this sort of visit to God hypocritically, for they may come for the fashion, they may hear with deaf ears, they may understand and yet never determine with themselves to obey that which God requires. And let such men be assured that he who searches the secret of hearts will be avenged of all such, for nothing can be more odious to God than to mock him in his own presence." Let every man examine himself with what mind and what purpose he comes to hear the word of God, and with what ear he hears it, and what testimony his heart gives to him when God commands virtue and forbids impiety. Relax when God requires obedience, you think it to your own condemnation. Mock God's threatenings, you will feel the weight and truth of them, albeit too late, when flesh and blood cannot deliver you from his hand. Ahab, as it is written in the book of the Kings, received many notable benefits of the hand of God, who visited him in different ways, sometimes by his plagues, sometimes by his word, and sometimes by his merciful deliverance. He made him king, and for the idolatry used by him and his wife, he plagued the whole of Israel by famine. He revealed to him his will and true knowledge by the prophet Elijah He gave him multiple deliverances, but one most special. When proud Ben Hadad came to besiege Samaria, and was not content to receive Ahab's gold, silver, sons, daughters, and wives, but also required that his servants should have at their pleasure whatever was desirable in Samaria. True it is that his elders and people begged him not to hear the proud tyrant, but who made him the promise of deliverance, and who appointed and put his army in order who assured him of victory, the prophet of God only, who assured him that by the servants of the princes of the provinces, who in number were only 230 and 2, he should defeat the great army in which there were 23 kings with all their forces. And as the prophet of God promised, so it came to pass. Victory was obtained not only once, but twice, and that by the merciful visitation of the Lord. But how did Ahab visit God again for his great benefit received? Did he remove his idolatry? Did he correct his idolatrous wife, Jezebel? No, we find no such thing. But that he continued and increased in their former impiety. But what was the end? The last visitation of God was that dogs licked the blood of the one and did eat the flesh of the other. Like a woman with child that draws near in her trial, is in sorrow and cries in her pain. So have we been in your sight, O Lord. We have conceived, we have borne in vain, as though we should have brought out the wind. Salvations were not made to the earth, neither did the inhabitants of the earth fall. This same similitude is used by our master, Jesus Christ, for when he speaks of the troubles of his church, he compares them to the pains of a woman struggling in childbirth. It is to another end, for there he promises exceeding and permanent joy, although it appear trouble. But here he speaks no doubt of their long and painful time of their captivity in which they continually labored for deliverance, but did not obtain it before the complete end of 70 years. First, fightings against the present despair, he says, your death. Dead will live, even with my body will they rise, awake and sing you that dwells in the dust, for your dew is as the dew of herbs. The prophet here pierces through all impediments that nature could object, and by the victory of faith he overcomes not only the common enemies, but the great and last enemy of all, death itself. For this he says, Lord, I see nothing. For your chosen, but misery to follow misery, and one affliction to succeed another. Yea, in the end I see that death will devour your dearest children. But yet, O oh Lord, I see your promise to be true, and your love to remain towards your chosen, even when death appears to have devoured them. For your dead will live, and not only will they live, but my very dead body will arise." And so I see honor and glory to succeed this temporal shame. I see permanent joy to come after trouble, order to spring out of their terrible confusion. And finally, I see that life will devour death, so that death will be destroyed, and so your servants will have life. The prophet transfers all the promises of God to himself saying, even my dead body will arise. And immediately after gives commandment and charge to the dwellers in the dust of what to do with the dead carcasses of those that were departed. For the spirit and soul of man dwells not in the dust, that they should awake, that they should sing and rejoice. The charge that he gives to the dwellers in the dust is to express the power of God's word. He not only gives life, where death apparently had prevailed, but also by it, he calls things that are not, even as though they were. It is no doubt that they carried with them both the prophecy of Isaiah and Jeremiah, so that the prophet Ezekiel, in a commentary to these words of Isaiah, where he says, Your dead, O Lord, will live. With my body they will arise. Isaiah compares it to the dew to help those who struggle with the idea of the loftier and unseen things. If you think this impossible, that God should give life to you after you were destroyed from the face of the earth, but why do you not consider what God works from year to year in the order of nature? Sometimes you see the face of the earth decked and beautified with herbs, flowers, grass, and fruits. Again you see the same taken away by storms and the power of winter. What does God do to replenish the earth again and to restore the beauty thereof? He sends down his small and soft dew. The drops in their descending are neither great nor visible, and yet they are the pores and secret veins of the earth, which before by powers of frost and cold were shut out opened again, and so does the earth produce again the herbs, flowers, and fruits. Will you then think that the dew of God's heavenly grace will not be as powerful in you to whom he has made his promise as it is in the herbs and fruits which from year to year bud out and decay? Now, if the power of God is manifested in raising up the fruits of the earth, to which no particular promise is made by God, what will be his power and virtue in raising up our bodies, seeing that he is bound by the solemn promise of Jesus Christ and his eternal wisdom and the truth itself that cannot lie? Neither yet is this power and goodwill of God to be restrained to the last and general resurrection only, but we ought to consider it in the marvelous preservation of his church, and in the raising of the same from the very bottom of death, when by tyrants it has been oppressed from age to age, we have to gather this comfort that If at any time we see the face of the church within this realm so defaced as I think it will be sooner than we think for when we will see virtue to be despised, vice to be maintained, the verity of God to be impugned, lies and men's inventions holding in authority. And finally, when we see the true religion of our God and the zealous observers of the same trodden under the feet of such as in their hearts say that there is no God Let us then call to mind what have been the wondrous works of our God from the beginning, that it is his proper office to bring light out of darkness, order out of confusion, life out of death, and finally that this is he that calls things that are not, even as if they were as before we have heard. Come, you, my people, enter within your chamber, shut your door after you, hide yourself a very little while until the indignation pass over. Here the prophet brings in God lovingly, calling upon his people to come to himself and to rest with him until such time as the fury and sharp plagues should be executed upon the wicked and disobedient. The chambers then are God's sure promises to which God's people are commanded to resort and within which they are commanded to close themselves in the time of great adversity. The manner of speaking is borrowed from that judgment and foresight which God has printed in this our nature. For when men see great storms appearing to come, they will not willingly remain uncovered in the fields, but immediately will will run to their houses that they may escape the power of the same. So we may perceive the meaning of the prophet, that God acknowledges them for his people who are in the great affliction and as such are reputed unworthy of other men's presence or accepted within the secret chamber of God. This doctrine we will not find strange if we consider how suddenly our spirits are carried away from our God and from believing his promise. So, as soon as any great temptation apprehends us, then we begin to doubt if we ever believed God's promise, if God will fulfill them to us, if we abide in his favor, if he regards and looks upon the violence and injury that is done to us. Again, which is this is the remedy, once to apprehend and still to retain God, to be our God, and firmly to believe that we are his people, whom he loves and will defend not only in affliction, but even in the midst of death itself. Two vices lurk in this nature of ours. The one is that we cannot tremble at God's threatenings before the plagues apprehend us, even though we see reason why His fierce wrath should burn as a devouring fire. The other is that when the calamities before pronounced fall upon us, then we begin to sink down in despair so that we never look for any comfortable end of them. To correct our mortal nature in time of quietness, we ought to consider What is the justice of our God, and how odious sin is, and above all, how odious idolatry is in his presence? Who has forbidden it, and who has so severely punished it in all ages from the beginning? And in the time of our affliction, we ought to consider what have been the wondrous works of our God in the preservation of his church. This saw that notable servant, Jesus Christ, Athanasius who, being exiled from Alexandria by that blasphemous apostate Julian the emperor, said to his flock, who bitterly wept for his envious banishment, Weep not, but be of good comfort, for this little cloud will suddenly vanish. He called both the emperor himself and his cruel tyranny a little cloud. Albeit there was small appearance of any deliverance to the church of God, nor of any punishment to have apprehended the poor old tyrant, When the man of God pronounced these words, yet shortly after God did give witness that those words did not proceed from flesh nor blood, but from God's very spirit. For not long after being in warfare, Julian received a deadly wound, whether by his own hand or by one of his own soldiers, but casting his own blood against heaven. He said, at last you've overcome, you Galilean, so filled with spite. And so perished that tyrant in his own iniquity. The storm ceased, and the church of God received new comfort. But now let us come to the last point. For behold, says the prophet, the Lord will come out of his place to visit the iniquity of the inhabitants of the earth upon them, and the earth will disclose her blood and will no longer hide her slain. The prophet brings out the eternal God, as it were, from his own place and habitation, and there shows the cause of his own coming, that he might take account of all who have done wickedness. He will visit the iniquity of the inhabitants of the earth upon them. And so, if any should think the wrongdoers are so many that they cannot be called to an account, he gives to the earth, as it were, an office and charge to bear witness against all those that have done wickedly and chiefly against those that have shed innocent blood from the beginning and says that the earth will disclose her blood and will no longer hide her slain men. If tyrants of the earth and such as delight in the shedding of blood should be persuaded that this sentence is true, they would not so furiously come to their own destruction. For what man can be so enraged that he would willingly do even before the eyes of God that which might provoke his majesty to anger, and even provoke him to become his enemy forever, if he understood how fearful a thing it is to fall into the hands of the living God? The cause then of this blind fury of the world is the ignorance of God, and that men think that God is but an idol. Where it is said that the Lord will come from his place, and that he will visit the iniquity of the inhabitants of the earth upon them, and that the earth will disclose her blood, we have to consider what most commonly has been and what will be the condition of the church of God namely, that it is not only hated, mocked, and despised, but that it is exposed as a prey to the fury of the wicked, so that the blood of the children of God is spilt like water upon the face of the earth. For mercy they receive cruelty. For doing good to many of all the reprobate, they receive evil. And this is decreed in God's eternal counsel, that the members may follow the path of the head to the end that God in his own just judgment should finally condemn the wicked. For how should he punish the inhabitants of the earth if their iniquities deserve it not? How should the earth disclose our blood if it should not be unjustly spilt? We must then commit ourselves into the hands of our God and lay down our necks. The reason is evident, for as there are two heads and captains that rule over the whole world, namely Jesus Christ, the Prince of Justice and Peace, and Satan, called the Prince of the World, so there are but two armies that have continued battle from the beginning and will fight to the end. The quarrel which the army of Jesus Christ sustains and which the reprobate persecute is the same the eternal truth of the eternal God and the image of Jesus Christ printed in his elect so that anyone who in any age persecuted any number, any member of Jesus Christ's for his truth's sake subscribes as it were to the persecution of all that have passed before him. Let the faithful not be discouraged although they are appointed as sheep to the slaughterhouse for he for whose sake they suffer will not forget to avenge their cause. I'm not ignorant that flesh and blood will think that kind of support too late. We had rather be preserved still alive than have our blood avenged after our death. And truly, if our happiness stood in this life, or if temporal death should bring to us any damage, our desire in that would be understandable. But seeing that death is common to all, and that this temporal life is nothing but misery, and that death fully joins us with our God and gives to us the possession of our inheritance— why should we think it strange to leave this world and go to our head and sovereign captain, Jesus Christ? Let us now humbly humble ourselves in the presence of our God. And from the bottom of our hearts, let us desire him to assist us with the power of his Holy Spirit, although we may look through the woeful storm of his present displeasure and see as well what punishment he has appointed for the cruel tyrants as what reward he has laid in store for such as continue in his fear to the end. Give us, O Lord, hearts to visit you in time of affliction. In the meantime, grant to us, O Lord, to repose ourselves in the sanctuary of your presence, that in you we may find comfort Till this, your great indignation begun with us may pass over and you yourself appear to the comfort of your afflicted and to the terror of all your enemies. Let us pray with heart and mouth. Almighty God and merciful Father, Lord, into your hands I commend my spirit for the terrible roaring of guns and the noise of armor. Do us pierce my heart, that my soul thirsts to depart. Amen.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Revive Thoughts. Today's episode was narrated by Douglas Bond. Uh, Please check out his website if you liked what you heard. Again, he has several books on historical figures of the church uh, and two books on John Knox himself. You can see all of his stuff at bondbooks.net. If you liked today's episode, please check out our website at revivethoughts.com. There you can find the transcript for this episode and all of our episodes.
0: If you enjoyed this episode and sermon of john Knox's and you would like to let other people know what we're doing at revive thoughts please feel free to share it send it to a friend a text message or just talking to them in person will go a long way to making them want to listen to the show and we really appreciate when we see people share it on social media and while you're on social media go ahead and give us a like on facebook instagram twitter and you can follow us there for more information throughout the week and more resources that we can bring to you this is troy and joel and this is revive thoughts This episode is brought to you by the in-between podcast a podcast about marriage parenting faith and everything in between
1: on the in-between podcast you will hear how to raise children that change the world
0: ideas to keep the romance alive with your spouse
1: how to not hate your in-laws
0: ways to save money for your next vacation
1: and how to use the enneagram in your relationships
0: join us Daniel
1: and Christina M
0: as we give you the tools to learn how to build a strong connected and joy-filled marriage and family.
1: For more information, go to inbetween.org. That's imbetween.org.